Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure has been a while, it seems, since I was on the air with you all last. You know, it's been, what, about at least three days uh, since I uh, spoke to all of you last. Um, I did miss you guys, and I have no doubts that all of you missed me. And, of course, I'm sure many of you were beginning to wonder if I would even probably come back on the air. Well, I've made that... I've. Um, fulfilled my promise. Uh, everything's good. Uh, but as I've said before uh, from a previous podcast, as much as I enjoy doing this, I also know that um, I can't um, make podcasting my life. In other words, there has to be um, a um, proper balance in life itself. So um, my wife and I went to Colonial Williamsburg for the day on uh, back on Sunday and had a, a wonderful time. Uh, we got to see um, uh, a reenactor um, portray himself as George Washington. We've seen him um, do this on multiple occasions, and he is uh, a phenomenal um, interpreter of George Washington. As a matter of fact, the um, fellow who portrays uh, George Washington at Colonial Williamsburg is a retired Army colonel himself. So um, that is a very, very well, um, well-matched portrayal, to say the least. And besides getting to see George Washington speak, we um, visited the shops that were, um, well, not so much shops, but we went into the uh, governor's palace, uh, the Capitol, uh, went inside the uh, Raleigh Tavern, which has a great share of um, history. That's where um, in 1774, between that time and 1775, where uh, discussions took place on how to go about, um, on how to go about, um, having Virginia declare its separation from England. But what was going on at the Raleigh Tavern on Sunday was um, watching um, how uh, wigs were made. Of course, we must remember that uh, that when a man wore a wig in the 18th century um, time, that was a very, very, um, what do you call it, um, prominent um, display of fashion for the for its day not everyone could afford a wig but I must point out and the uh, docent who was there was very pleased to know that I knew this but um, I, I should remind all of you who don't know that George Washington himself never wore a wig I know it would be easy to assume that um, Mr. Washington who would become um, the first in the fellow hearts of his uh, country and the first pretty much with everything, um, would have been the type who would have worn a wig. But believe it or not, he didn't. I should also point out that, yes, Thomas Jefferson did wear a wig, but uh, he was not big into that um, fashion trend. However, when you get to uh, members of the uh, Randolph family, most notably uh, Peyton Randolph, um, Edmund Randolph, yes, they would have been very, very inclined to have worn wigs. So... I guess I should throw this out that uh, that one if a man owned a wig, it wasn't just one wig he would have owned. If he was well to, wealthy enough, he could afford more than one wig. A brown wig would have been for everyday settings. Uh, if he wore a gray wig and was in the um, political um, or what we might say a lawyer profession, he would have worn that for uh, business attire. And if it was for a formality, like attending a ball, then he would have worn a white wig. So, let's face it, folks, if you if you were that, um, what do you call it, if you want to heavily invest in uh, fashion and you have the money, 
then you can definitely invest in um, at least three wigs or more at best. So that's what my wife and I learned at Williamsburg that was uh, very educational, to say the least. Now, when George Washington spoke, uh, he talked about the, about the nation's future, meaning that he was uh, taking on the new role as chief executive officer, a.k.a. president of the United States. It was very um, fascinating, to say the least. But nonetheless, um, we're, um, our focal discussion um, involves Mr. George Wythe in uh, Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation. From the last time I was on the air with you all, uh, we were discussing... Um, we were discussing uh, what George Wythe Sweeney would be ultimately charged for, or let alone charged with, not just murdering his great uncle, but how about forging the checks to stealing valuable possessions, like the rare books that were supposed to have gone to Thomas Jefferson. So here we are still in part two of the investigation, but we're going to uh, learn um, starting today and going into the next episode for another um, for another day, we're going to learn about um, George Wythe Sweeney's defense team. And as I said from the previous podcast, it was totally unheard of in the 18th and 19th century times for a, for a defendant to have more than one lawyer representing him. I should also point out that in uh, colonial days, if one could afford a lawyer, that was one thing. But if you couldn't afford a lawyer, guess what would happen? You would be left to defend for yourself. Sometimes uh, that could have meant that, hey, maybe the client, that maybe the lawyer himself was not interested in representing someone who had um, stooped so low as to uh, making a fool out of himself. On the other hand, um, you know, lawyers in this time are very conscious or very cautious about whom they want to uh, represent. After all, George Wythe uh, was very adamant on honesty, and if there was one thing that even he himself could not tolerate or just couldn't stand was dishonesty. So after all, George Wythe himself did not take on those whom were um, dishonest in his eyes. So the first uh, lawyer we're going to be learning about for uh, George Wythe Sweeney's defense counsel is a fellow named Mr. William Wirt. I'm sure many of you all have never heard of him. I didn't know anything about him until I read this book uh, about a year and a half ago. So our, our lead-off question is the following. Was William Wirt considered to be one of the best lawyers in America going into 1806? Yes. For one, he, is a, he has um, successful oratory skills. Okay, Remember, folks, oratory, communication skills? He's full of good wit and humor. But he also has a unique way, or let alone he uh, possesses unique abilities to persuade an audience whom was previously undecided. What could that audience be, perhaps? Maybe a jury. After all, if Mr. Wirt's going to be representing uh, George with Sweeney, he's got to be able to find a way to convince the jury that his client is innocent. So, William Wirt, uh, let me ask you this, did William Wirt know George Wythe well? Yes, he did. Had he known George Wythe for as long as Thomas Jefferson had? Actually not. 
Mr. Wirt had um, known George Wythe since 1796. Now, I will mention this part um, right now, that um, there is a big age difference between Thomas Jefferson and uh, William Wirt. And the only reason I say that is because I mentioned a second ago that um, while Jefferson had a um, long, long lifetime relationship or let alone friendship with Mr. Wythe, William Wirt, while yes, he knows him, it's not the same kind of friendship that Thomas Jefferson has. In other words, William Wirt, while yes, he does value and respect George Wythe, he doesn't see Wythe as a father figure like Thomas Jefferson did. Is that a bad thing? No, not necessarily. After all, people have people, not everyone has the same relationship or a connection to someone that, say, other individuals do. So anyways, yes, Mr. Wirt has known George Wythe since 1796. He has served as he serves as a clerk to the state legislature for three terms from 1800 to 1803. But how ironic in this in the year of 1803, Mr. Wirt becomes uh, one of Virginia's three judges on the Chancery Court. Well, who else happens to be on the Chancery Court? None other than Mr. George Wythe. Now, whereas George Wythe represents uh, the rich represents Richmond, uh, Mr. Wirt represents Virginia's Eastern District, which would include um, which would encompass rather Norfolk, what we now know as Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads. So, therefore, uh, Mr. Wirt uh, resides in Norfolk. Now, by the time uh, Mr. Wirt becomes a lawyer which would have been late 1780s, early 1790s. Many of Virginia's laws have already been reformed thanks to, Je to Thomas Jefferson, Mr. Wythe, and Edmund Pendleton. And on one hand, have these reforms been a good thing? Yes. But I must remind you all again that, that some of these reforms perhaps um, have not um, turned out for the better. Remember uh, an example I gave from the last podcast? It used to be before the reforms took place that if someone had stolen someone else's property, like a horse or let alone rare valuables, wouldn't that person have uh, gotten branded? And if, he, and if he did it again, what would have happened? He would have gotten hung. Well, remember, Thomas Jefferson and George Wythe said that um, that the only instances where a man should be hung for his uh, crime was murder and treason. After all, you know, George Wythe Sweeney has been charged with murder. I mean, yes, he's been charged with forgery, which may not seem as a big of a big of an offense as murder. But I think we would all like to believe that okay, if he's been charged with murder. And there is um, insurmountable evidence against him. Wouldn't that be an automatic slam dunk? That's what we would hope. But nothing is, as we say in life, you know, nothing is ever a 100% guarantee. So basically, by the time Mr. Wirt becomes a lawyer, many of the case precedents that he himself studied for his trials had been decided by Judge Wythe. So while that does serve as an advantage to Mr. Wirt, I just have to wonder over time, is it going to lead to the outcome that so many in Virginia want? In other words, they want a guilt, guilty verdict. In other words, they want George Wythe Sweeney to pay. So what made William Wirt want to pursue this case? I, I think many of you all are itching for that answer. 
I, I often wondered, I often asked myself that question too, especially when I first read this book. Because, after, well, after all, you know, George with Sweeney does have the right to a fair trial. He does have the right to, you know, proper legal representation. I can tell you this much about Mr. Wirt. He is a very ambitious person. He is wanting to seek fame. He is also very interested in wanting to make money. You know, it's one thing to want to make money. In other words, it's one thing to maybe you know, move up the ladder because there's not just better opportunities, but also more pay involved. But if we're not careful, and in this case, William Wirt wasn't careful, what was he if he was wanting to make money and wanting to seek fame, and he was very ambitious, could that mean that he was also very interested in chasing the almighty dollar? I would say so. And chasing the almighty dollar is not always a good thing. It, to me, that's also a bad example of where someone um, is pursuing dreams that, while yes, may seem um, admirable, they may seem um, to some extent attainable, but what happens when those dreams don't get achieved? How are you going to handle the uh, reality? How are you going to handle the failure? Because after all, None of us are immune from failure. Life isn't supposed to be a cakewalk. Well, for Mr. Wirt, we're going to find out more later on in this podcast why he is so ambitious. It's not so much because of this trial. I can tell you that much, folks. There are other reasons why. But we do know that he's very ambitious and he is very much wanting to make a name for himself. So, as I said earlier, he's living in Norfolk. But living in Norfolk enables him to pursue uh, more money, in large part because Norfolk is a bustling seaport town that is home to four, that pretty much um, includes 400 homes, multiple warehouses, inns, taverns, and churches. The shipping business in Norfolk, as well as in neighboring Yorktown, provides large amounts of legal business for Mr. Wirt. So there you have it, folks. A big... Um, what you call it, a big um, riverport town and seaport town with the York River and Norfolk being um, really sandwiched or um, encompassing the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. You've got ships coming in and out. People, uh, there's a lot of uh, mercantile demand or just let alone uh, the mercantile trade is big there. So this is good for Mr. Wirt. He can establish a lot of um, business and connections big and small. By uh, representing George with Sweeney, what did Mr. Wirt hope for in return? Well, he, uh, fame, publicity. Uh, you know, the fame and publicity that he was hoping to attain would, in his eyes, could lead towards a high-end Virginia office position or something even greater, say, um, like being a U.S. District Attorney, or maybe being a Justice on the United States Supreme Court, or maybe a um, United States Attorney General. You know, hey, those are all are great goals, but at the same time, would you want to be remembered for defending someone who m not just murdered someone, but murdered a, um, a man who was so well-revered and respected 
by people in the community, not just in the community, but elsewhere in the United States. You know, that's the same question that um, that we still um, have to ponder with today. You know, why are attorneys out there representing um, high-profile people whom we know are guilty, but yet somehow, in some cases, they are allowed to go scot-free because of who they are? So, um, as for William Wirt, he served on, as we know, he served on the Chancery Court. But how many years did he serve on there? Did he serve uh, three years, five years? Believe it or not, folks, he only served for one year. He left the post because it paid little money. It only paid $1,500 a year, but I should point out, folks, that for one to have made $1,500 a year... In the early 19th century, that was a lot of money. But, of course, the cost of living back then pales in comparison to what we know in uh, today's time. He did uh, marry um, in the 1790s, but his wife, um, his first wife, died. And he does remarry in 1802, a year after Thomas Jefferson became president. And by 1803, he and his wife have a family. They have uh, two children. And obviously, you know, he's got to think about his family and how he wants to, how he's going to support them. So he's he's still in the Chancery Court at this time. But the problem was that it in his eyes it wasn't enough to make ends meet. On one hand, that's a good case, but at the same time, Mister Wirt didn't value being on the Chancery Court like George Wythe had done. So uh, the next question I should point out is this: Was William Wirt you know, as I mentioned earlier, he he was a very he's a very good lawyer, but is it safe to say that um, for the that there are people out there who are so good at what they are in terms of what they do work wise? Can it be safe to say that there were um, people in the 19th century who um, who were uh, labeled workaholics? Yes. What is a workaholic? Someone who works themselves to death to the point where they don't know when to stop. They don't know, um, basically they don't know their boundaries. They put their work ahead of the needs of their own family. And yes, Mr. Wirt was a workaholic. And it did lead to major tensions between him and his wife. Um, we I do know that Mr. Wirtz and uh, Mr. Wirtz's family, being his wife and children, um, often left Norfolk in the summer, or let alone in the summers, because of the hot heat waves. And by going to Richmond, it was a way to escape not just so much the hustle and bustle, but the oppressive heat, but just a better change in um, in climate. Perhaps in Rich- even though yes, Richmond's summers are hot, even in today's time. Maybe they weren't as hot in the 19th century. Maybe, you know, the temperature in Richmond was a little bit cooler in the summer compared to Norfolk. But Mr. Wirt's wife and children, uh, and she had family in Richmond, they would often stay there for long periods of time until the weather um, rec- until the weather got better in Norfolk. But where was Mr. Wirt? Still in Norfolk, working himself like a Turk, but not recognizing the boundaries. 
I should also point out that uh, Mr. Wirt's wife uh, wasn't a big fan of Norfolk because she saw, she along with other women in um, Norfolk saw the town as a haven for drunken sailors, including a uh, presence of prostitutes, which posed dangers to the community. I also should mention, too, that Mrs. Wirt um, sadly lost a child shortly after birth, and shortly after the funeral, Miss, what did Mr. Wirt do? He went right back, he went straight to work. So in other words, um, Mr. Wirt simply did not have any um, boundaries uh, whatsoever. I mean, here after all, think about it, folks. Life expectancy is not high, even going into the night, start of the 19th century. And, you know, you've just lost a child. It's a very, very um, tough um, ordeal. And, you know, here's Mrs. Wirt um, struggling with the loss of the child. And here's um, Mr. Wirt, who um, is not really showing much sign of... Um, sadness or compassion for the uh, for the loss of, of of child in my eyes so yes you could see where uh, tension is really um becoming more prevalent now besides the fame uh william Wirt wanted redemption okay so why did mr william did mr Wirt have a setback before um before going into 1806, uh, in terms of a uh, setback in the courtroom that just didn't go to his, that did not um, lead to the uh, right outcome. Yes. Well, let's uh, forward um, about six years back. We go back to six years back, backwards to 1800. John Adams is still president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson is the vice president. But there was a uh, trial that Mr. where Mr. Wirt himself was involved in. It revolved around um, a piece of legislation that, um, that Congress passed two years earlier in 1798, mostly along party lines. And that you have to remember um, that under George, when George Washington and John Adams were presidents, they first off they represented the Federalist Party, and the Federalists are in control of Congress pretty much from the time that um, George Washington is sworn in as president in 1789 up until uh, March of 1801 when John Adams leaves office. But in 1798, Congress passed what was called the the Alien and Sedition Acts. The Alien Act revolved around immigration, but in 1800. Um, there was a case that Mr. Wirt represented and involved a fellow named James Callender. Now, before I get to James Callender, many of y'all, if you all haven't uh, heard about the Sedition Act before, I will give you a brief 101 um, description of the act itself. Basically, the reason why this act was put into law was because the Federalists were very skeptical of the opposition party being the anti-federalists. The federalists were very, very, um, they were very um, 
untrustworthy or let alone distrustworthy of what the opposition had to say about the government. They felt that it was very um, reckless and irresponsible for anyone at this point in time to be questioning what the government did. So they decided to take it upon themselves to put this law into play that basically made it a crime to badmouth the government. Folks, uh, what does that violate? Free speech. It also violates freedom of the press, the right to assemble and petition. You know, there were newspapers at this time. Maybe we didn't have as many newspapers then like we do today, but there were newspapers around. And what, do they, what did they do? The same thing that newspapers do today. They report the news. So there were those who wrote um, newspapers that yet who uh, wrote newspapers articles that catered to anti-federalists' um, ambitions and objections, concerns, and those people were uh, put in jail. Sadly. So as for James Callender, he he himself was jailed for speaking out against the government. So to sum it up in a nutshell, Mr. Wirt. Um, obviously came up with a strategical game plan for representing Mr. Callender and along with others who were accused, but Mr. Callender was his primary client. But basically, Mr. Wirt's game plan um, was an absolute failure. It just went, um, it just went uh, nowhere. And the verdict uh, was not in their favor. Uh, James Callender did spend nine months in prison for... Uh, for speaking out against the government. Now, long story short, I will mention this. Uh, the reason why James Callender's name is very unique is because uh, when he was released from prison, Thomas Jefferson promised him a uh, position within the government. Sadly, Thomas Jefferson was unable to fulfill that promise. What did James Callender do? He went behind Jefferson's back and um, met with um, Federalists, and which included members of the Randolph family. After all, Thomas Jefferson's mother was a Randolph. And long story short, these people basically um, told James Callender that Thomas Jefferson um, had a mistress, that Thomas Jefferson had fathered a handful of a particular slave's children, being Sally Hemings. Well, that scandal did break out, and within a short period of time, um, Mr. Callender was found dead in the James River. In other words, Mr. Callender knew a little bit too much information to where he um, stabbed people in the back from all different angles to the point where um, it cost him his life. So anyways, I thought I'd uh, point that example, point out that little uh, piece of information. So whenever you uh, hear of James Callender, think of uh, Mr. Callender as the man who um, was the one that um, broke out the, um, the uh, allegations involving uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. But I will save that. That topic would be for a whole other um, discussion. But there are... Um, but if you do go to Monticello, I will point out real quick that they have done a very great job of... Um, educating uh, that piece of history with the Hemings and the Jefferson family. Um, it is um, 
I, I do applaud what the Monticello um, Foundation Society has done um, for that because uh, that was a story for that was a, a matter for years that people just did not discuss at Monticello. But I do applaud them now within the last 25 years with um, bringing that matter to uh, greater attention, given that with all that's going on in the world today. So um, I, I do applaud the uh, Monticello, um, applaud the uh, Thomas Jefferson um, Foundation for doing all that. But uh, back to William Wirt. Um, when it came to uh, criminal cases where others automatically saw defendants as being guilty, Mr. Wirt always believed the accused deserved a defense. Well, there you have it. It's kind of like, you know, John Adams. As I said from my previous podcast, yes, no matter how angry um, the rest of, um, of the community or let alone the public as a whole is with, with what the accused has been charged with, remember... The accused still has a right to a fair trial. The accused still does deserve to have a defense. After all, that's what John Adams preached in the 1770 Boston Massacre trials. In other words, yes, there were many in Boston who were angry at the fact that the soldiers had uh, fired into uh, the crowd that resulted in the deaths of five people. But after all, even the soldiers themselves deserve the right to a fair trial. So remember, folks, when you um, go to a courtroom or see uh, a court case on television, any kind of a court setting, whether you watch Law and Order, any kind of courtroom TV drama, when you see the prosecution and the defense presenting their cases, if there's one man you can thank in terms of from our forefather generation, thank John Adams. He's the one that said everyone deserved the right to a fair trial. Now, did Mr. Wirt have outside influence behind representing George with Sweeney? I hate to tell you this, folks, but he did. It turns out that an uncle of George Sweeney's had pleaded with Mr. Wirt to defend his nephew. Bef Mr. Wirt, before accepting the case, had gone to great lengths by discussing Wirt's murder amongst the Williamsburg community as he himself handled court cases at Virginia's former capital. In other words, he wanted to get other people's take on all this. Sweeney's uncle went as far as telling Mr. Wirt everything opposite. Like, for example, the uncle um, told Mr. Wirt that the nephew didn't put any arsenic in the food or the coffee consumed by the Wirt household the day the alleged poisonings happened to not finding paper containing arsenic. And if the food and the coffee were poisoned, then why didn't Sweeney die? Why didn't the judge die right away if poisoned with lethal dose of arsenic? As for that last uh, comment I made, I will uh, talk more about that in a later uh, podcast. But those were, um, but those were um, matters that um, had to be uh, that were um, addressed. Now, was there a side to Mister Wirt? I should point this out here, folks. Was there a side to Mr. Wirt um, whom thought George with Sweeney could be found um, guilty? Yes. He believed that Sweeney truly did commit forgery as well as stealing um, valuables, a.k.a. 
rare books for um, yes. for some time went as far as telling other lawyers in Williamsburg that Sweeney would most likely hang for the crime and wished no lawyer stepped forward to take on the youth's case. So I find this interesting that uh, Mr. Wirt, that there was a side to him who truly was convinced that perhaps Sweeney himself could be found guilty. On the, on the other hand, though, despite these assumptions, Mr. Wirt was still very, very determined to uh, pursue his ambition, that is to um, become an even more respectable lawyer, um, not just, in other words, he wanted to keep advancing himself up regardless of the costs. In other words, regardless of what the outcomes were, regardless of how it might affect um, the greater community as a whole. So basically, despite these assumptions about Sweeney's guilt, he still is wanting to pursue this ambitious drive behind attaining fame regardless of costs. As I said before, that can be a dangerous thing. And if you don't know your and if you don't respect your boundaries, you do run the risk of um, not only ruining your own image, but perhaps, um, but perhaps ruining other people's um, happiness, or not just happiness, but perhaps ruining that of your family's reputation. So, in other words, having limits is not always a bad thing, but at the same time, you also have to be realistic about what's. Um, what's appropriate and perhaps not appropriate to pursue. Now, here we go. Here's something else I'm going to tell you right here, folks. And this is very, very important. So I want you all to pay careful attention, which I know you will. By taking on George Wythe Sweeney in a high-profile trial, what else did Mr. Witt choose to, Mr. Wirt choose to overcome? And this is a personal struggle. He had been enduring um, a long-term battle with stuttering, which had dated all the way back to his childhood. But he also knew that it had potential to impact his legal career and personal life. And so we have to remember in the 18th century, and as well as going into the 19th century, there's no cure for stuttering. And in that day and time, it was seen as a as a sign of embarrassment. So more often than not, when a family member knew that their child was suffering from some, um, what we might think of in today's time as an intellectual deficiency or a, um, a developmental delay, in the, set, in the 18th and 19th centuries, more often than not, a child was um, often kept at home to in order to be um, kept from any kind of... Um, public embarrassment about their um, impediments, or let alone impairments. So Mr. Wirt's stuttering became so bad to where it kept him from not being able to speak altogether. Well, here he is a lawyer, but remember this too, folks. If anyone wants to become a lawyer, especially in this day and time, what did the lawyer really need to be able to have? Well, you got to have good oratorical skills or oratory skills. But you've got to be stutter-free. So, by the time Mr. Wirt is in his early 20s, 
he decides to um, pursue a mission, a mission that is very admirable. The mission was to rid himself of the stuttering altogether. It turns out that Mr. Wirt loved to sing, and he found out very quickly that those who stuttered usually sang without difficulty. And for Mr. Wirt, this was a great asset here by being knowing that he could sing. By 1806, Wirt's stuttering had gotten under control to where he became an excellent speaker. Well, that's great because, you know, here he is on uh, the verge of um, wanting to make a name for himself. And he's, you know, wanting the fame and wanting the redemption. I mean, he's got it all. And by... Um, Overcoming the, by overcoming the stuttering disorder, Mr. Wirt had proven that he could do many other unique tasks or assignments in the court, um, courtroom settings, such as working on civil and criminal court cases where other lawyers were or weren't involved. Overcoming the stutter enabled Mr. Wirt to have, strong social, to have a strong social life with young men of his age, most notably single men, in settings like taverns, balls, receptions, dances. So think about this, folks. If you really want to have a lot of confidence in yourself, you've got to, um, you've got to take a chance. And he's proven that. And I applaud him for doing that. You know, he's, I mean, he's overcome the odds. I mean, yes, they were probably... I could point this out from his first marriage that his in-laws, while yes, they respected him, they also told him that maybe he was better off just being a law clerk instead of a lawyer, and this way he wouldn't have to be present in the courtroom all the time. On one hand, yes, that might be being a law clerk may not be a bad idea because you are, you know, practicing in the field of law to some extent, but why not? prove um, something different. It could be fair to say that maybe Mr. Wirt is like the like a Rudy of his time. You know, uh, Ru uh, the movie Rudy, uh, where uh, Rudy Rudiger went to Notre Dame, and um, there were many um, people in his life growing up who told him that, you know, he didn't have the grades to get into Notre Dame, and that he just wasn't smart enough to go, but believe it or not, he uh, proved all those people wrong, and went on to play football there for two years, and uh, still to this day, I believe he remains the only uh, Notre Dame football player in the school's history to have been carried off the field in the way he did. So, yes, Mr. Wirt has definitely defied all odds and has really um, made a true name for himself. Now, I should point out that he was born in the year 1772, two years after the Boston Massacre took place, four years before um, we officially declared our separation from England, a.k.a. the Declaration of Independence. Mr. Wirt was born in Bladensburg, Maryland. Now, I should point out to you all that Bladensburg, Maryland uh, is not far from Washington, D.C., and for those of you who uh, listened to um, to my uh, podcasts, um, being uh, Steve Vogel's uh, book "Through the Perilous Fight from the Burning of Washington to the Six Weeks to the Star-Spangled Banner and the Six Weeks that Saved the Nation," uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Bladensburg, there was a um, Bladensburg was home to a uh, battle in the War of 1812, which is often referred to as America's Forgotten War, where um, 
there was such a bad debacle on our end that it pretty much led an open route for the British to come and sadly um, burn our capital, burn the White House and every um, other governmental building with the exception of the patent office. But Bladensburg was there, um, was the British, um, was the defining moment where the British, once they were able to drive our forces away, they pretty much had everything in plain sight. And I should point out that that, uh, that the burning of Washington was the 9-11 of the 19th century. But I should also point out for Mr. Wirtz, uh, sadly, he lost both of his parents before reaching the age of seven. Um, I can't imagine being in his shoes in that day and time, knowing that um, that both of my parents died when I was young. So he was raised by an uncle who sent him to a boarding school, and how ironic that at this particular boarding school he met a fellow named Ninian Edwards, whom later became the governor of Illinois and was a close friend to Abraham Lincoln. Small world. You never know sometimes where uh, these uh, friendship connections come into play. And there is a place in Illinois not far from the Illinois-Missouri line closer to St. Louis known as Edwardsville, which is named in honor of Ninian Edwards. Now, as for Mr. Wirt, given that he is a successful lawyer, his first um, law practice catered to clients in the counties of Culpeper, Orange, and Albemarle counties. And during the, that time, he became very close friends to Thomas Jefferson, John Marshall, James Monroe, and James Madison. Some very, very prominent Virginians, to say the least. Now, did William Wirt find regular, consistent conversing? In other words, having constant conversations as a way to overcome the stuttering? Yes. He engaged people around him on topics from geography, history, politics, law, to traveling, which helped reduce all potential uncertainty in public settings. There you have it. This, this success doesn't happen overnight, but the more he's around people, the more he is talking to them. And while, yes, he may have some stuttering or a certain degree of it, but the more he talks with people over time, the stuttering can be greatly reduced. And if he hadn't done all this, who's to say that he ever would have achieved um, success in overcoming this um, um, deficiency? Did Mr. Wirt represent clients from different ranks of society? Yes, he did. He defended clients whom were well-to-do merchants as well as farmers from the middling class status. He also looked for defendants whom had minimal chances to succeed, which meant strong oral arguments for ensuring an acquittal. Remember what acquittal means, folks? That means if you have been acquitted, that means you have been found not guilty. Can that be a good thing as well as a bad thing? Yes. I wonder how that will uh, fare out as the trial gets closer. I mean, we would certainly hope that um, Mr. Sweeney wouldn't get acquitted but you know some but you know something too even in the 19th century there were um there were ways to um find um criminals not guilty of things that everyone else knew was uh, was the exact opposite so i i find it interesting that, yes mr wirt did defend clients from different ranks of society, but that he 
basically wanted to pers- go after those whom had minimal chances to succeed, and obviously George With Sweeney was one of them. So I could see where um, why Mr. Wirt was so adamant on taking this case, one of the reasons. Now, many in Richmond were surprised about Mr. Wirt taking on this case, but at the same time, there were many who weren't. Given how adventuresome and ambitious he was in the courtroom, which also meant that murder ca- that when it came to murder cases, they, they were his specialty. That was his specialty. So I think it could be fair to say that we're looking at it even 50-50, where, say, maybe 50% of Richmond are surprised that he wants to take on this case and that the other 50% really aren't. After all, somebody's got to represent him. But as I said from the previous podcast, and as I said earlier, in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was very unheard of for a client to have one or to have two lawyers at best representing him. The only other time I could think of where there was a court case where more than one lawyer was present on both the prosecution and defense sides was during was the Boston Massacre trials of 1770. To us, as we finish this uh, podcast episode here momentarily, the decision to represent George with Sweeney on William Wirt's part in the end didn't startle many Virginians. But the presence of a second attorney, being none other than Mr. Edmund Randolph, sent shockwaves, not just in Virginia, but elsewhere in the United States. And the reason for that, it's not so much because he's a Randolph but it's because of his past record, most notably having been U.S. Attorney General under George Washington, which led him to resign in disgrace. So, here we have one lawyer who is really, really bent on achieving fame, seeking the almighty dollar, very ambitious on what he wants to achieve, and then we have another lawyer who we're going to be discussing in the next podcast episode who, while yes, comes from a prominent Virginian, prominent uh, family in Virginia, at the same time, his past record has been one that has um, not been as shiny as, say, Mr. Wirtz. I'm almost beginning to wonder what could these two have in common? They have to have something in common. Obviously, they both enjoy law. But when we, but when I'm back on the air with you all um, again next, we're going to learn more about Mr. Um, Edmund Randolph and why he chose to take on this case and why he um, had to resign in uh, disgrace. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, or wherever you all are, it might be daytime, regardless of whether it's daytime or nighttime in your neck of the woods. In your neck of the woods, we've covered a lot of ground, and it has been great to be back on the air again. I missed you all. I have no doubts that you all missed me. Um, but once again, thank you for listening to Anchor Podcast. And if you know of anybody else out there who wants to um, start podcasting, tell them to come to Anchor. The opportunities are limitless, and the results, um, in my opinion, go beyond the sky ceiling. Thank you for listening. Take care and stay safe. <laughs>